You are now listening to the Here for the Truth podcast, hosted by Joel Rafidi and Eurosimos. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Here for the Truth podcast. Eurosimos dropped his own intro yesterday, but I'm back this week. Need to reclaim the mic. Eurosimos, don't you dare do that again. Uh, guys, thanks so much for listening. We're a podcast dedicated to truth seekers, getting out you know all the necessary information um, that you're likely not going to hear in many other places, interviewing absolute legends who are doing great work. And this week is absolutely no different with Connor Boyack, the creator and author of The Tuttle Twins in the house. These are incredible children's books, which I highly recommend um, you guys get out to any kids that you're connected to, either children, nephews, nieces in your life. Um, highly important information. Right before we bring Connor on, uh, there's 50% worth of spots um, still left for this round of Rise Above the Herd. Um, it's locked at 15 students. We begin July 10. Um, so if you're interested, please head to riseabovetheherd.co. Quickly, I'd like to give a shout out to David, um, who left a testimonial from the last round of Rise Above the Herd. He says, Rise Above the Herd was the ultimate consolidation of all Joel and Erasmus's work over the past few years. It's like all the best parts of everything they stand for and teach on the podcast rolled into eight intensive weeks full of excitement, challenges, life-changing realizations, and friendships to do it alongside with. The before and after comparison of myself exceeded my expectations, and I now feel so aligned with my unique journey, so focused on what's truly important, and I feel clear about where I'm headed in life. Rise Above the Herd cuts through all the confusing fluff that's out there and gets straight to the truth of what it is that we're here to do. You will not regret this investment in yourself. I certainly don't. David, thank you so much for those beautiful words, brother. Uh, It was an absolute pleasure and an honor. So if anyone's interested in joining us for the next round of transformations, we begin July 10 and you can apply at riseabovetheherd.co. Without any further ado, here is the man, Connor Boyack. Enjoy this episode. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Here for the Truth podcast. We have the honor of hosting today the incredible Connor Boyack. He's a public speaker, TV show producer, and author of 36 books, best known for creating the Tuttle Twins books, a children's series introducing young readers to economic, political, and civic principles with over 4 million books sold. He's also the founder and president of the Libertas Institute, an award-winning free market think tank and educational organization responsible for changing over 100 laws across a wide range of issues, including drug policy, privacy, transparency, property rights, free association, criminal justice, and parental rights. Connor, thanks for being here for the truth. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm looking forward to the chat. Yeah, for sure, man. Us too. One way we always like to kick this off, particularly with first-time guests, is we want to get into your personal story a little bit. Like, what were some of the major rites of passages and I guess the primary catalyzing moments in your life that I guess led you down this particular path? Um, there's one major one that stands out. I, I grew up in a household that wasn't too you know political. My mom was on our city council for about 10 years. I grew up in San Diego, California. And, uh, and so you know we would talk here and there about current events, but it wasn't like a big focus. It wasn't really on my radar. Um, I went to college, I became a web developer, so I would create websites for a living. And then I uh, got married. And one day I'm watching TV with my wife. And, uh, and this was 2007. And the news was showing this, uh, this event that had happened in Texas, 
where law enforcement had raided this compound, they called it, uh, which was called Yearning for Zion. It was uh, these fundamentalist polygamists who uh, were kind of very sheltered. And someone had called a, a hotline and provided a tip that like, hey, there's abuse happening. And so like all these law enforcement agencies swooped in and they went in with, you know, guns a blazing and tanks and all this kind of stuff. This wasn't Waco. This wasn't, you know, any of the other uh, uh, similar things, but they go in and then they removed over 400 kids from their parents because the allegation was that there was some kind of child abuse. As it turns out, that tip was false. Uh, it was like a crank call, um, but that that's what led all the law enforcement in there. They take these kids away from their moms, and 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 so I'm watching this on TV, and I I don't know what's what, and I don't you know, but I was I was horrified by what I saw. I reacted very poorly to it um, because I I understood at least at the time that like when the government comes after you, they should come after the individual who's suspected of a crime and not go after like everyone in your whole neighborhood or everyone who belongs to your church or your entire extended family. Like it's supposed to be specific. And so when I saw these kids ripped away, I, I read this report of the, uh, the foster care system and how much abuse there is in the foster care system. So they're taking these kids away from their, their, their moms, you know, and putting them in this system that's full of all you know drug abuse and sexual abuse and everything. So anyways, I, I'm just a web developer and doing some online marketing. And so I'm like, you know what? I'm going to start a petition, uh, an, an online petition. That was kind of new in 2007. No one was you know doing that too much. And it got like over a thousand signatures. I ended up on the news, did all these interviews. I was writing congressmen. All these people were flooding the comments saying, thank you for standing up. Thank you for, you know, speaking out. And, you know, I'm, I, wasn't connected to them. I'm, I, I don't share their views on, you know, polygamy or, or anything like that. But uh, they were kind of a marginalized group that few people wanted to stand up for and their rights were being violated. And I didn't know what I was doing. But I just stood up and said, hey, that's wrong, you know, and, and knock that off. Uh, but the gratitude that I got, and and the praise and the, the you know, just the, uh, the love and, and support was so life-changing for me. And I realized, oh my gosh, like I, I really enjoyed that. I enjoyed kind of taking my talents, my techno, uh, technological kind of background and applying it to this context. In this case, it was just a petition, but like, hey, I have some talents that I can use. Maybe I can use them in ways I've never thought of before to actually make a difference mm. and help other people. And so that that to me was like the spark that lit a fire in my life of like, how else can I serve and support other people who are being marginalized or who are being, you know, hurt or their government is persecuting them. How can I help them too? And that's, I've now built a whole career around that in an organization doing just that. It's incredible how like, you know, you can just go along your regular everyday life. Then a single decision can just activate something that was dormant, which, you know, radically changes the entire trajectory of what, of what we're living for. Um, absolutely incredible, man. Yeah. Yeah, no, that the it's the little things in life that have the biggest impact. I feel like, and and there's obviously many other influences and and pivot points, and but that was that was one of the big ones. And I, I like what you said, uh, actually. Just as I reflect on my own life, I, I think I like to plan things out, and I think I'm in control, and I think that I'm trying to like forecast into the future, and I know where I'm going. But you're right. Like uh, I think we have to be open to you know adapting to constantly changing circumstances, which frankly is tiring. 
Like, yeah. I'm like, can we have some stability and, and just have <laughs> status quo and not have to constantly be reevaluating everything and responding to market changes or business, you know, issues or customers and, uh, but such is life. And so I, I, I try to cultivate an attitude of like, you know, what's tomorrow going to bring, I might do something totally different than I've ever done before. And, uh, so far that served me well. So I'm glad you call that out. I agree. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there, too, because, you know, it's important, I think, to have goals and have a vision. But at the same time, you don't want to be so rigid that you don't have the ability to be flexible and to be open for the miracles that show up in your life uh, that allow you to pivot, allow you to change. I mean, uh, I mean, my story is pretty wild in terms of making decisions and one thing leads to the next thing that leads to the next thing. But before you know it, you're you're sitting here and you're having a conversation with two people on Zoom and. Uh, it's pretty amazing what came before. But I want to ask you this question. I don't know if you want to share anything that led up before that, but what inspired the Tuttle Twins? Like, what inspired you to to create these characters and to want to educate children about liberty, about freedom, about entrepreneurship, about capitalism, etc.? Yeah, so for those briefly who don't know, you know, the Tuttle Twins is a series of kids books and now a cartoon that teach the ideas of freedom and a free society to the rising generation. And uh, this got started 10 years ago, decade ago. Uh, I was running this think tank, changing these laws, because again, I had kind of built a career now around changing laws and trying to go help people. And I had two have two kids, but at the time uh, they were five and three. My five year old was almost turning six, and you know I'd come home at the end of the day and say, "Tell me what you did," and he's like, "I watched this cartoon or I played with so and so," you know, whatever. But he would start to reciprocate the question, "Dad, what did you do today?" I was like, "Uh, like, how do I tell my kid something more than like I typed on a computer all day or you know I had phone calls?" Like I wanted to meaningfully convey to him that what I was doing, but how do you talk to, you know, a five-year-old about fighting eminent domain down at the city hall and like what that even is, or how do you talk to these, you know, little kids about combating socialism or fighting for free markets or whatever. So uh, I did what any dad in my shoes would have done when presented with that scenario. And I went to Amazon and I typed, you know, children's books that teach about property rights or free markets and um, there was nothing. And at the time I'd been kind of kicking around the, this idea with a buddy of mine who had kids and big, uh, freedom, uh, fan as well. And we were teasing on this idea. What would it be like to do a children's book? Um, would there be a market for that? Uh, would that be something that we'd want to team up together and do? And so we decided to just do a book. We had no vision for the future. We had no idea if it would catch on. We just said, if we only ever do this one book just for fun, what would we want to create together for our own kids that would, you know, be super meaningful? So we created that book, The Tuttle Twins Learn About the Law. It's based off of the law by Frederick Bastiat, a French economist, a really fun short essay. And uh, because that essay was influential for both of us in our own kind of intellectual development and, and worldview, uh, developing our worldview. So we created the book. Sure enough, a lot of people bought it and started asking us, when's the next one coming out? We're like, yeah, we'll get right on that. And, <laughs> uh, before we knew it, a series was born and now we sold 5 million copies and it's just gone bonanzas. Yeah, man. Um, I've got the law uh, myself. You know, I've got two daughters. Um, they, they really enjoy it. They're onto the little TV series now that you got going. Um, Great. Kudos to you on that as well. Like for you, bro, what about like in your own personal journey? Like were you always freedom-minded? Were you always liberty-minded? How were these principles cultivated in you originally? 
So, um, as I said, I didn't grow up in a super political household. My, my parents would talk about some of the stuff, but they were probably just generic conservative Republicans. Um, but a big influence in my life was actually my, my grandfather. When I went to college, uh, he would, uh, I went to college near where he lived. And, and so we would, you know, hang out for dinner my, with me and my grandparents and other relatives. And he would start feeding me articles uh, of like speeches that had been given or booklets like the law, you know, and he would, he would introduce me to a lot of this material. And, um, and so I, I kind of got a good foundation through him to a lot of these ideas and philosophy and economics and so forth. So he was kind of giving me a foundation and then kind of the, the rocket ship that propelled me off the foundation was in gosh, 2000, I want to say 2006, um, I was invited to the, this local library for a screening of a new film that had just come out, might have been 2005, uh, by the late Aaron Rousseau, uh, and it was called America, Freedom to Fascism. Mm. And Rousseau was chronicling from his perspective how these like lofty ideals of freedom that the classical liberal founding fathers fought for have degraded uh, in America and that we've fallen very far from that kind of lofty ideal that they had fought for. So he's, he does this documentary. I'm sitting in a library with like, I don't know, 12 other people uh, on a you know Saturday afternoon watching this documentary. And there was this guy in, in, uh, in the documentary who made just a lot of sense. Like listening to him, I was like, that guy, like I need to learn more from that guy. Cause he's just like throwing truth bombs, you know? And I just like, give me more of that. Well, it was Congressman Ron Paul. Mm. And uh, so I did what many have done since that time. And I Googled Ron Paul and went down that rabbit hole and read all his you know, speeches, watched all the videos. This was before the presidential campaigns um, uh, in 2008 and 12. Uh, and so just a lot of his congressional stuff, uh, his books, books that he recommended, right? Because he had kind of a recommended reading list. And so I would go start reading those. And, and so that was like my my red pill moment was Aaron Russo uh, having that documentary introducing me to Ron Paul. And that just opened up the whole world of, you know, Austrian economics and and uh, free markets and individual freedom. And so uh, grandpa gave me a foundation, but man, Ron Paul was kind of lit the yeah. fire under me. That's a great documentary. I, I watched it when I think when I think when it came out. But he also uh, I think he also directed one of my favorite comedies of all time, Trading Places. If I'm if I'm not mistaken, but uh, oh, I didn't know that. I that, think so. Oh wow! And Dan Aykroyd and uh, Eddie Murphy from like the 80s. I'm pretty sure he he may have been a producer on that. Cool. Mm-hmm. I have to double check. Anyways, <laughs> <laughs> throw that little bit of t- trivia in there <laughs> to, to to be confirmed. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Um. Uh, because you bring you bring the grandfather character back in the first book, right? The law. Yeah, yeah. So we've got uh, uh, the neighbor. His name is Fred, and uh, he's actually modeled or, or inspired by Frederick Bastiat, who is the author of of you know that essay that uh, ours was inspired by. So uh, the twins have grandparents, and they kind of come in later in the series. But in that first book, it is their neighbor Fred, who's an elderly old you know older fellow. And so he's kind of the wise old neighbor that could uh, uh, be like my grandpa was to me, that he could kind of teach them and expose the twins to a lot of stuff. And the twins, like I have a boy and a girl. They're not twins. They're two years apart, a little less than two years apart. Uh, But in the book, 
uh, in the books, the Tuttle twins characters are modeled after kind of the personalities of, of my own kids. Um, and so that's, it's been fun. My kids love like beta, beta testing the book, you know, I'll be working on a draft and they'll read through it. Although my son recently, now he doesn't want to anymore. He just wants to wait for the final product. Um, but in the past he's always kind of helped edit and like, Oh, what about changing this? Or what if you do that? And, uh, it's, it's fun. It's just, it's a family project. We all love it. And, um, it's, it's a good time. Connor, let me ask you the most important question. Are you paying him for his consultation and, and editing? I'm just, just want to double check on that. <laughs> okay. Here's the way to answer that question. So, uh, for years I have used my kids in our marketing, uh, especially when in the early days when we got started. So I would have these cute little kids, uh, you know, memorizing their lines and, and just giving the marketing commercial and I would film it and I edited it and everything. Right. Cause I didn't have a team at the time. And so uh, these views were so cute. They got millions of views across social media. And one day we're on family vacation in Lake Tahoe. And my kids, you know, every few weeks or whatever, they'd say, how many views is it at now? And, you know, and, uh, and so I told them whatever it was, 4 million views or something at the time. And my, my wife says, um, man, they've sold a lot of books for you. Too bad you aren't giving them a royalty. And and my son turns to me and says, "Dad, what's a royalty?" <laughs> and I'm like, uh. <laughs> so we we talked about royalties, and then we talked about contract negotiation and how now it's a lesson to negotiate better upfront when you have leverage uh, or or demand a renegotiation of your contract. <laughs> so so no, I I pay them a very modest minimal amount uh, for their efforts. My my boy, for example, he uh, I, I taught him how to edit uh, audio, and now he's our podcast editor. So we wow. have a podcast called "The Way the World Works," and they're little fifteen minute episodes just for like mom and the kids in the car, just plant little seeds for discussion. And uh, and so we record, we do three a week uh, on our podcast. And so my boy, I pay him uh, not only to edit it, but as part of editing it, he has to listen to the entire thing so that he can like take out any bad like the excuse that i use is that oh i want you to to edit you know any coughs or but really like he's now listening to the entire thing and getting educated so it's kind of a devious uh thing on my part but he's learning a skill and i'm paying him to do it and uh and he loves it so so yeah again it's like a family affair early on uh, the kids would help me pack books back when we would do it at, at uh, my house before we we now have a warehouse where we employ like 20 or 30 people just packing books all day um so it's uh, it's definitely a, a family project. Cool, man. How old is he now? If you don't mind me asking. So uh, my oldest just turned fourteen, um, and uh, and then my daughter's twelve. So they're they're now moving into the teen books. Uh, so we have two different series of books for teens: a fiction series and a nonfiction series. Um, and so they're they're kind of moving into that uh, upper upper bracket. Cool. Yeah. What why do you think your message? And your books, like, why do you think they've become so popular? Well, we were having kind of slow growth uh, in the early years. Uh, And then 2020 was massively explosive growth. Uh, Just to give you a little numerical snapshot. uh, From the time we started in 2014 through 2019, so about five, six years, we sold, uh, what was it? It was about 750,000 books cumulative right across those years that's how many total books we had sold about 750,000 in 2020 alone we sold 1.3 million books 
Uh, it's almost double what we had done, mm-hmm. you know, combined. And so I, I think there were many reasons for that, but primarily, you know, with every, all the crap happening in 2020, number one, everyone became a homeschooler, at least for a few weeks when the school shut down. Mm-hmm. And so everyone's like, crap, how do I teach my kids? What do I teach my kids? You know? And so there's a lot of like recommendations between parents. Oh, get this, check into that, do that. So there was a lot of word of mouth that really spread like wildfire. Um, and then, uh, you know, just the authoritarianism of the government's response to COVID and shutting down, you know, not only the schools, but stores and churches and beaches and parks and everything else. I think a lot of people have this visceral reaction of like, what happened to my country? Yeah. I, I thought we lived in the land of the free, or I thought that we had these basic rights and that we were a free society, you know, and all of a sudden the government can do this because people get scared. So there were a lot of parents who kind of got red pilled and 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 woken up to the reality of the uh, the state that we live in. And so from that perspective, a lot of parents were like, crap, you know, I, I've been resting on my laurels. I've taken these things for granted. Uh, I, I don't want my kids, you know, to grow up in a world that has less freedom than I did. So what do we need to do? Right. And so there we were to raise our hand and say, hey, you know, come check us out. Uh, the final thing I'll mention why I think we exploded was right when the lockdowns first uh, really heated up, uh, we launched a sale called the Lockdown Learning Sale. And it was like this <laughs> bundle of books you could get and all these bonuses and stuff. And just like the right time, you know, because everyone's like a buzz about lockdowns. And then we did that sale and that sale just like blew up. Um, so just kind of for me, it, it speaks to like that concept of when preparation meets opportunity. Like we had been doing this for a while and we were kind of prepared for something like this. Um, and then the opportunity, unfortunately, arose uh, and we were able to to leverage it and, and reach a lot of people and just keep growing. So it's been, um, you know, the word word of mouth continues to spread. People love the books uh, from a wide range of, you know, political spectrum um, and just just really seeing that we need to foster critical thinking in our kids. And that uh, this is an effective way to do it because the schools aren't doing it well. The textbooks don't do it. You know, social media certainly doesn't do it. Uh, And I think a lot of parents, in fact, there was a massive survey that came out a few months ago, global survey, and they were asking parents to rank like their priorities for K through 12 education. What do you want to get out of this for your kids? And all kinds of factors, right? I want them to be, get a good job in the future. I want them to be able to get into a good college or whatever. Uh, but the top two reasons across, I think it was like 50,000 uh, parents surveyed. So this was a very statistically significant survey. Top two reasons. Number one was I want my kids to learn practical skills. And number two was I want my kids to develop critical thinking. Mm. Well, the schools do neither of those. And so I think a lot of parents recognize, crap, I need to do something different. I can't just keep sending my kid to school and uh, you know think that they'll turn out all right. Um, and so we've... we've uh, We've been able to attract a lot of families who I think just, again, have kind of red-pilled and realized they need to do something different. Yeah, man. And I want, I want to dive into the, um, the education system in a little bit. But first, quickly, I want to ask you, like as someone that had, I guess, as you say, been red-pilled to the tentacles of fascism or socialism starting to take root um, in America, were you surprised by the reaction that took place in 2020 by governments do you see it coming to that degree? Um, where 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 were you at that moment in time? So I wrote a book in 2014 for just an adult general uh, nonfiction book called Feardom. 
how politicians exploit your emotions and what you can do to stop them. And that book talks about many things, but it was primarily focused on a post 9-11 world, talking about how, you know, Americans got scared. And and so we surrendered all these freedoms in the name of safety. Mm-hmm. And then we have neither safety nor freedom anymore. And so I talked a lot about how this historical trend, I mean, you can go look at World War II or World War I or the Vietnam War, you know, all these uh, global events, big events that have happened. Uh, this is a trend that has happened for a long time. But I, I focused a little bit more on on kind of the 9-11, just because it was a recent, you know, fairly recent example to have in people's minds by way of reference. And when I wrote the book, I, I had this sad realization that the book was never going to uh, go out of style or, or become irrelevant, right? That it was like this evergreen topic that no matter the issue, we're going to go through this again. and People are going to get scared and they're going to surrender our, their freedoms because they're told that that's necessary in order to you know, have this new government program that will keep us safe. So I, I was kind of keen to that trend, you know, before COVID happened. And, and so very quick, like, of course, when something new comes out like that, like you, you lack information, you're like, Oh, wow, is this a big threat? Is this a a problem? Is this as bad as they say it is? And and we're all in that position of ignorance. But, uh, but for me, at least pretty quickly, I was kind of like, I I bet they're overblowing this. I bet they don't know what they're talking about. I bet that we don't actually need to take all the crazy precautions uh, that everyone is telling us to. So I, I was kind of wise uh, to it, but it, but it reminds me of uh, there's that quote, those who don't learn from the past are condemned to repeat it. Mm-hmm. But then the corollary to that is those who do learn from the past are still condemned to repeat <laughs> it because everyone else fails yeah. to, to learn and forces you to go through and relive the mistakes of the past. So, yay, I, I knew, you know, differently and, you know, but still I just had to sit here and suffer through all this stuff because everyone else was, uh, you know, falling prey to their fears again. And, 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 and honestly, like the, the question that keeps me up at night is whether COVID was enough to jar enough people awake so that we don't do this again anytime soon. You know, have have enough people learned that the government lies and that there's all these, you know, incentives and corruption and 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 reasons why the government acted the way they did and, and that they were often wrong and, and all the rest, right? Like, have we learned have enough people realized that so that they're on guard next time anything remotely similar to this happens? And I'd like to think that that's the case, but I, I'm ultimately a pessimist in, on this particular issue where I feel like whatever the next incident that happens is, it's going to be just different enough or scary enough or that that people are going to fail to apply the learning from the COVID experience to this other circumstance. And so we're just going to go through this constant cycle as we have in the past. And, uh, and so I, it, that saddens me because I, I don't want to keep, uh, you know, like, like Aaron Russo's documentary, you know, degrading from freedom to fascism. Like I'd, I'd love to turn the tide around, but we live in a society of people who are more scared and want to be kept safe and coddled rather than, you know, Thomas Jefferson has this quote where he says, timid men prefer the calm of despotism to the tempestuous sea of liberty, mm. right? Freedom is, is a, you know, shaky ground. Like, uh, 
you know, what we were talking about earlier, right? Having to pivot from one thing, like always having to be on guard and adapt and change. And, and, and so the sea is tempestuous. Despotism is calm. It's, it's like a prison cell. You have a schedule, you have a certain regimen, you eat at predictable times, you're locked away, kept safe, right? Like, so yay, you know, you have a calm life, but. Sounds, sounds, yeah. sounds like the womb. Yes. Yeah. So I, 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 I fear that we're in a society where too many people, to use Thomas Jefferson's term, are are timid, and uh, they would prefer to be told that you know getting our bodies scanned at the airport is necessary to stop terrorism, so that we can fly mm-hmm. safe. And and we we buy into these lies because we we get scared as a society, and that becomes the new normal, the new baseline, where everyone just takes for granted that's all been the way it's always been done, and. Uh, it's just it's just a sad fact of human nature, I suppose. Yeah, man. I mean, you can't have freedom without responsibility. And unfortunately, we have a populace that seems to be avert to, to responsibility. And I guess the question now is, why is that? You know, the first thing that pops to my mind, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the testimony of Yuri Bezmanov. Uh, it's a G. No. Edward Griffin. Oh, talking G. about Edward Griffin, the, yeah. Yeah, so G. Edward Griffin interviewed Yuri Bezmanov back in the early 80s, I believe. Um, and Yuri discusses the demoralization of America through the education system, um, talking about infiltration um, of you know different, I guess, political threats. And over time, the American populace would be demoralized enough to ultimately come to hate the founding principles of America. Um, and so, when I say that, what what comes up for you in terms of how our education system has shifted? Um, to end up being, I guess, in a way, in, in, in antithesis to what America was built upon. So I was speaking to a parents group recently and about education, schools, uh, and, and what's happening. And a mom raised her hand and said she, she vented about all these problems, the you know, critical race theory and the 1619 project and gender ideology and all these things. And she said, she used the phrase, the school system is broken. And I, I pause as like, I, I respectfully disagree. Because to be broken, it has to be inconsistent with what its original design was. Mm-hmm. And if you go back and you look at the architects of the modern school system, in America and beyond, but chiefly in America, uh, the, the design that they implemented, I'm talking about Horace Mann, and John Dewey, these secular humanists, atheists, their god was government. The, and John Dewey literally has this quote where he calls uh, teachers in school prophets of the one true god. But, but he was an atheist. His god was government. It was the state. And he saw teachers as the frontline ambassadors for the state. Not to inspire kids to be individualist, critical thinking, entrepreneurial, you know, ruggedly independent overachievers in life. No, quite the opposite. To to cultivate a citizenry of subservient citizens who know how to follow orders, who know how to get in line, who can do what they're told. And and that was the goal. That was the design to create a collectivist uh, uh, approach to shape society. They were very open about this too. I mean, Horace Mann 
you know, he was the first uh, uh, secretary of education in Massachusetts uh, where they introduced compulsory schooling. And, and so he was, you know, late 1800s, early reformer in this effort. And he has this quote where he says, men are like cast iron, children are like wax, right? Men are, are set in their ways. They're difficult to bend. You can't mold them differently, but children are like wax. You can mold them any which way you want. Let's go after the kids, which is what all dictators and despots have always done throughout history. They go after the rising generation. So anyways, back to this lady. I said, look, I, I don't think the school system is broken. I think all the, the problems that you're seeing are outgrowths of the very design that was created. Um, and, and so if you don't like that, then get the heck out of, <laughs> out of that system if that's not producing the results uh, that you want. Uh, I'm a product of what I call the public fool system. I, I attended uh, government schools and, and uh, in the 80s and 90s in California. And gosh, this was, uh, it's been 40 years. It was 1983 when the Ronald Reagan administration put together a group called the National Commission on Excellence in Education. They spent 18 months going across the country, talking to parents, teachers, principals, reviewing curriculum, trying to assess how is education going in the United States. At the conclusion of their 18-month study, they put together a report. They called it an open letter to the American people. The title of the report was A Nation at Risk. And in the, the, the chief part, the core part of the report, they said that America's educational foundations were being overwhelmed by a rising tide of mediocrity. And, and that if a foreign government, they said, if a foreign government had attempted to impose upon America the very mediocre educational standards and, and performance we now have, we might have viewed it as an act of war. As it stands, they said, we've allowed this to happen to ourselves. That was in 1983, just over 40 years ago. And so when I talk about education and I talk about schools, I'll often share that story and I'll say, raise your hand, anyone in the audience who thinks that schools are substantially superior to even just 40 years ago. And to date, when I've asked this question, no one has been brave enough to raise their hand that they think things are amazingly better. Because you look even just at test scores, let alone all kinds of other metrics, and things are flat, if not, you know, degraded. There's probably, I'm sure, some anomalous kind of marginal areas of, of improvement and things have, have gotten better. But on the whole, things are much worse. And so when I put my tinfoil hat on, I think to myself, if I'm a, a, a ruler, if I'm part of the elite that gets to kind of uh, shape and, and influence society, do I want a citizenry of independent, critically minded, entrepreneurial, rugged individualists? Well, of course not. You can't govern people like that. They challenge you. They call you out. They know history and therefore don't want to repeat it. Um, those are not the people who are easily governed. Right. And so if, if you want to govern people, you want a dumbed down populace. You want people who don't know their history, who are. It's why a report came out just a couple of weeks ago. 13 percent of eighth graders are proficient in American history. Thirteen, one, three, only 13 percent across the country. And so I look at that and I think it's appalling. But I think there's a lot of people who look at that and are content with that because they know that those people will become you know, serfs and drones and, you know, uh, uh, people to be taxed to supply, you know, funding to the, the elite and those in control for their programs. And 
They won't know enough to challenge them. They don't know their rights. Like if you don't know what your rights are, how do you know when they're being encroached upon? If you don't know between you and your neighbor where the property line is and your neighbor continues to advance and lay out his trash and his lawn chair and, and go over onto what you think is your property. But if you don't know where the property line actually is, how do you point anywhere and say this far and no further? Right. If you don't know what your rights are, you can't defend them. And so people who are historically illiterate and civically apathetic and, and you know, products of this, this government school system are just mediocre and, and they're, they're, they're malleable like the wax that Horace Mann talked about. So that's why I think those of us who care about freedom and we're fighting in the courts and at the Capitol and trying to change all these laws, at best, we're putting Band-Aids on these gangrenous wounds. Right. Like there's there's these underlying diseases in our society that if we don't treat those, all these little problems and issues are just outgrowths of this core disease that we have. And so for me, it always ultimately boils down to education. I don't think we're going to save our country at the Capitol. I don't think we're going to save our country in the courtroom. If our country is to be saved, I think it's at the dinner table where families are talking about the ideas that matter, the way the world works, the, the current events and hot topics of the day, helping develop critical thinking in their children. That's why we do what we do at the Tuttle Twins is because I think that's the ultimate solve for our society is to rebuild social fabric and support families and supporting the rising generation. Otherwise, we're, we've already lost and we're just throwing band-aids on gangrenous wounds and I ain't got time for that. Mic drop right there. Yeah, I mean, that was uh, <laughs> incredible, man. And uh, I totally agree with you. And and even just relating back to what Joel mentioned in terms of the interview with Yuri Bezmanov, he was a ex-KGB defector. And the interview was in 1984. And he talked about this idea of ideological subversion. And even though the Soviet Union fell, these ideologies are still there. They're still present. And so how do they infiltrate the minds and they infiltrate over generations of of getting into the university system, getting getting into the media system, et cetera, et cetera. And then we get to the point where we are now. And and I couldn't agree more in regards to th this this shift needs to happen, not deeply at the political level, but at the individual level with the person, with the child, with the parent, and how they're how they're shifting themselves and how they're raising the next generation. Yeah. Agreed. For sure. I mean, you know, you talk about not being able to point to the property line when, you know, someone is encroaching on one's property. Well, yeah, it's it starts at the property line with the house, but very quickly, as we've seen over the last three years, it comes to, you know, our own property, the the, the personal property, you know, our our, our own bodies um, themselves. Those lines have now become blurred for many individuals as well. What actually belongs to me, you know? And I think many people are in, are in fact are in a place where they're actually questioning whether they have like any right to decide um, over over their own body, and it's it's surely it's 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 very scary to witness. And you know, like we kind of touched upon earlier, it's it's my hope too that you know enough people have kind of been shaken up um, from the events of the last three years to to come to the point where this may not have to happen to such an extent again. Um, but but time will tell for sure. So yeah. But, yeah. No. Go, no, I was, I was just going to say, and again, this is where education comes into play. Either an education is a system is empowering individuals or not and disempowering them and keeping them in a victimhood state where they're looking externally for people to take care of their basic needs and tell them what to do. Yeah. Well, and, and again, I don't feel like that circumstance that you just described is just this unintentional, spontaneous, organic thing that just happens mm -hmm. to be happening in society. I believe that there are people who yep. are 
cultivating that and fomenting that, who desire these outcomes. I, I, so I'm, I'm working on a book right now, probably going to target this towards teenagers. It's not a Tuttle Twins book, just another book I'm going to write. And it's called Mind Wars. Mm. And the entire book is about psychological warfare and what it looks like and propaganda and how our minds are influenced and how, you know, our brains can be hijacked by other people and, and manipulated. And, and, uh, you know, Edward Bernays to me is like a, a yeah. classic study here, right? Uh, for those who don't know who are, who are listening, he's the double nephew of Sigmund Freud. So he's got direct access to this kind of pioneer in research and understanding how our thoughts and dreams and, and behaviors work. And, and Bernays ends up working for the Committee on Public Information, which was a federal propaganda machine trying to persuade Americans to support World War I. You know, hilarious. Woodrow Wilson gets, uh, you know, elected. Oh, he kept us out of war, you know, reelected. That was the campaign. And then immediately tries to get America into war. And Bernays working in this in this uh, propaganda machine, learning these these tips and tools, writes his book titled Propaganda. Um, uh, He's now known as the father of propaganda and the father of public relations for variety of reasons we could go into. But um, what I've always found fascinating, like he's got. The, the book is an amazing read for any listeners who have not read it. It's a short book, but it's it's eye-opening that over a century ago, here's this guy talking about how the true ruling power in any society uh, is not what you think it is, right? That there are people who are pulling the strings that you cannot see or understand, and yet they are the true ruling power of society. It is they, he said, who pull the strings that govern the affairs, that our daily actions and thoughts are shaped by people that we don't even know exist. And and if he said that over a century ago in a very technologically uh, uh, simple era, you know, how, how have, have those types of similar people been empowered today to shape narratives and control messages in people's minds? And so at the end of the day, it all boils down to this uh, scenario. Any parent would be horrified if their child was sent off to some far off battlefield of, of you know, some theater of war. And not provided body armor or a weapon or knowledge of who the enemy is and how the enemy is going to attack, where they're going to advance, what the rules of engagement are, right? Like uh, as a parent, if your child were that soldier that was ill-equipped for the fight, you'd be ticked off because you know that your child will immediately become a casualty in that war if they're not adequately prepared and trained and uh, armored (laughs) to defend themselves. And so when I share this with parents, I say, is, is it any more acceptable for your child to become an intellectual casualty, an ideological casualty? Like psychological warfare is very much happening. And if you don't realize that your child's mind is ground zero, is the battlefield, right? If, if you're not giving them armor, if you've not helped them understand who the enemy is and how the enemy attacks, what your weapon of, of attack is to defend yourself, you know, what the rules are. Like, if you don't talk to your kids about this stuff, they're already a casualty. And what good are you? You know, and, and so we got to wake up to the fact that the, these influences and forces do exist. We got to understand how they operate, who they are, how, you know, what they look like, and and empower our children to be shielded from that and understand it so that they can resist and fight back and not become a casualty, but in fact, become an asset. And, help other people around them and, and, you know, be part of the, the, uh, the, the team to fight back. 
And so I'm trying to take my time with this book because I I don't want it to just be a reaction to COVID or I don't want it to be a, you know, I I want it to be an evergreen book that uh, has lots of examples throughout history of how this plays out. Uh, So it'll probably come out later this year or, or next year. But it's a topic I've been thinking through a lot because I feel like too few people realize that we are in a mind war. And they assume the best of intentions from the schools or the media. Maybe they're a little critical of the media or they say they don't trust these people and yet they continue to believe whatever garbage that they pump out. And it's that whole quote, you know, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Like I didn't learn the first time and people aren't learning. And so the goal that I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think through how best to wake more people up uh, and help them realize that we are in a mind war. Oh man, good, good, goosebump moments for me, man. During that monologue, um, like the terrain of war has changed, you know, and just, just many people haven't just realized that yet, you know. Um, but you're right; it's 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 psychological now. I'm not sure if you were aware, but I think it's either the grandson or the great nephew of Benet's is now one of the founders of Netflix. Yeah, the, the really? founder, of, the founder of Netflix, Mark Randolph, is Bernays's great nephew, I believe. Wow, I did not know so, that. You know, it always makes me think of George uh, George Carlin's quote, like it's one big club and you ain't in it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, and I think of, uh, I always chuckle at this story that here's Joseph Goebbels, you know, the, the Nazi yep. minister of propaganda overseeing all the Nazi propaganda. And what does he do to learn how to, to, to do all of his operations? He reads Edward Bernays. Yeah. Bernays had written this book on influencing, crystallizing public opinion and how to like, you know, shape narratives. And so uh, Bernays says that when he found out that Goebbels was was using his material, that he was horrified, in part because Bernays was a Jew. And, uh, and so here's the Nazis using this knowledge and these tactics to do everything that they did. It just showed like one of the best books uh, that I recommend is a book called Influenced by Robert Cialdini. And, and he talks about the psychology of persuasion and various ways to persuade you. And he says at the beginning of the book, like, these are tools. You know, it's like a gun. You can use a gun to go murder people or you can use it to defend yourself. You can use a tool, an inner, uh, inanimate object for good and for bad. And so the tools of persuasion can similarly be used for good or for bad. And so he, of course, advocates like, hey, you know, learn these principles of persuasion, not only so that you can resist being affected by other people and you can see through what they're trying to do, but so that you can use them in positive ways. Um, and so that, that's something I think a lot about too, is like uh, the stuff that Bernays was talking about, like there are nefarious people who are using this for their purposes, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be reading from the same playbook and trying to mm-hmm. persuade people to you know support freedom and be more independent and have personal responsibility. We, we got to be employing similar tactics of propaganda yeah. we, we used to get accused at, 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 at Tuttle twins of being you know propaganda for kids and i would resist that i would always get defensive when people oh no we're not you know propaganda is when the teacher's like shutting the door so that you know parents and the principal don't know what's going on and they're just like pushing their agenda on these unsuspecting kids that's not what we do we we go straight to the parents we're you know providing them uh, eyes wide open you know this material so i get defensive now i embrace the term i'm like i it's absolutely propaganda. Everything is propaganda. Yeah. We are just propagating information. That's all propaganda ultimately yeah. is. And and if you don't recognize that others are propagating their perspectives and their narratives at you, then why aren't you competing for your own child's mind and heart? Um, and so, yeah, admittedly, we're we're propaganda, but so is everything else. And so let's realize that and go compete. 
Exactly. Propaganda used to not be the dirty word that it became. And then I believe with Bernays, like he became the father of public relations. Like they changed the name. So it didn't have the same. More um, respectable. (laughs) Yeah, more respectable. But you're absolutely right. Everything is propaganda to a certain degree. And and ultimately it comes down to what ideas make the most sense and teach those. Yeah. Yep. There's a great, great chat between three propagandists right here. (laughs) <laughs> you consider indoctrination i see it the same thing there certainly is the negative context of what we consider indoctrination but ultimately it's teaching doctrine yeah which doctrine are we teaching you know every, like i am amazed at how willing parents are to take their kids to sunday school and to indoctrinate them religiously and i mean that in a positive sense i do it too i was at church yesterday with the family right i am indoctrinating my children in what i believe to be true doctrine um, and, and yet these parents, so few of them will indoctrinate their children economically and, and politically and civically. They, they're reticent to ex- like teach them, uh, you know, here's what's true or here's what's right, or here's what I believe. I think it ultimately stems from insecurity on the part of the parents because they themselves don't know very well. Or they don't understand these ideas. They don't have a lot of convictions because they're the products of, of, you know, the public fool system and they never learned this stuff that well. So they can't, which ultimately is why Tuttle Twins is like a crutch for parents because it's like, Hey, you don't need to be an expert in, in entrepreneurship. Just read this fun storybook with your kids and you can have a conversation about it. And, and, and over half the parents who get our books tell us that they're learning new things for the first time, you know? So I, I think it's just a sad indictment on our school system that so few adults are competent in and confident in their knowledge of of these issues but uh i guess it just means we got opportunity to to grow and help people who are in that situation yeah man like the way i try to put it into perspective for other parents is like between kindergarten and year 12 you're handing your child's mind over to the government for fifteen thousand hours 15,000 hours to be molded by strangers that are paid by the government and you have no idea who they are. Yep. Yeah. yeah. During their most intellectually formative years, yep. no less. Yeah. It's not like, oh yeah, when you're 50, you're going to go through this, you know, year like, no, it's, it's during their most formative years. Uh, um, I, I saw this hilarious, I'm going to butcher this, but it was, it was a Babylon B meme uh, a year or two ago. And, uh, and there was this, uh, it was like this 18 year old, getting into his car packed full of his belongings on the the front street and mom and dad are up at the the house standing on the porch waving goodbye and the caption says something like local parents excited to send their children off to college to erase all of the values and <laughs> and the ideas that they tried to encourage or something like that right but it, but it just shows that like there are like you said 15,000 hours in government schools there are these people who are influencing our kids why aren't we trying to influence them as well? Again, I think a lot of that is insecurity. I think it's ignorance. And so I, I, like, I used to see Tuttle Twins as us making children's books. I now consider them family educational resources because we're hitting up mom and dad as much as we are the kids. And we want them all singing from the same sheet of music. You know, people used to say, oh, you're preaching to the choir. The people getting your books already believe these ideas. I said, you know, the... The, the choir doesn't really get a lot of reinforcement. The choir's kids aren't joining the choir. Uh, they're abandoning the faith. They're not sitting in the pews. So we have to preach to the choir, and we have to help the choir go home and sing together with their kids. Um, otherwise, we're, we're losing people from our ranks. And I don't, I'm sick of playing defense at the end of the day. I want to go on the offense. I want to I win. I don't want to 
get one step forward and 83 steps backwards, you know, we have to have a more sustainable movement if we're going to be successful. And it starts with families. I love a man. Um, you know, like we have our own course ourselves, um, helping individuals develop self-esteem and selfhood and individuality. And I think what you're doing really is nurturing self-esteem. Because when you think about, you know, these principles, like even, you know, basic understanding of economics, individualism, liberty, etc. These are all things which, you know, help individuals to deal with the basic challenges of life. And when it boils down to it, Nathaniel Brenner, the great psychologist himself, defined self-esteem as that, one's competence to deal with life. So to me, it's like school is where self-esteem goes to die, you know, but it's, 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 it's these principles which actually nurture the seeds of feeling competent to deal with the reality that, you know, life, life is okay, that, you know, I have tools and skills and an understanding of what's happening around me to create something meaningful for myself, to lead a life of purpose without having to fear everything that I don't know, right? Because we're not taught how reality really operates. Right. Yeah. I love it. I agree. So let me ask you this question, man. Like, What's what's your writing process like? Like how does how, how does how does a book unfold? Well, right behind right behind him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For those of you watching the video, you can see my mind mapping. It's chaos. Um, well, I'll, I'll talk specifically to the Tuttle Twins. I've written about a dozen other books for you know general audiences and so forth. But the the Tuttle Twins, um, you know, I've got a long list of ideas that I want to talk about that I want to write about. I should say. And so uh, when it's time to write another book, it's, uh, it's just kind of reprioritizing. Like, what's the book that people need right now? Like, for those watching the video, this uh, artwork on the wall next to me is one of Elijah's images from our book called uh, The Tuttle Twins and the, the Leviathan Crisis. And all of our children's books are based off of um, classic books like The Law by Bostow that we were talking about. This book in particular... There's a book from the 80s called Crisis and Leviathan by Bob Higgs. He's an economist and a historian. And he talks in the book back in the 80s about what we mentioned uh, a few minutes back. And that is when there's a crisis, uh, government never lets that go to waste. They always leverage the crisis and they exploit the fear to expand their power. And so he, he talks, for example, about World War II how there were all these government bureaus of, you know, planning the economy and wartime production and all these bureaus and divisions and everything else. And then he, he shows like the whole list and he says, here's before the war, how many of them do you think actually were dissolved and disbanded after the war? Well, none of them were, they were just renamed because now it was no longer wartime production. It was, you know, uh, department of uh, economic planning and, and productivity or, you know, whatever. Right. So the government grew, that's the new baseline. And so in this image, we show uh, all these different, you know, like the, the market crash with the Great Depression, World War II, uh, the war on drugs, 9-11, the banking crisis, healthcare, COVID, and all the rest. And, and Leviathan is, is growing and growing in response. The state is, is growing. So that book, uh, I mention it because when COVID hit, and we saw again that like, okay, here we go again. People are getting scared. The government's going to grow, spend all this money, blah, blah, blah. Uh, we said, oh, this is the book that we have to do right now. This is the book that is relevant to the time that we live in um, and, and most pertinent to you know what families need to be talking about and thinking about. So a lot of it is just that constant reprioritization. 
Um, and you know, as for the writing part, like I'm a quick writer. Um, and so once I've got kind of the idea fleshed out and I know what I want to do, I, I fly a lot, I'm traveling a lot. So I, I'm often writing on, on the plane, 20 minutes here, 30 minutes there, 45 minutes there. And so it's very incremental and iterative in nature. Um, and it's very collaborative too. So Elijah, my illustrator contributes a lot and he'll, you know, uh, he's very like-minded and, and very well-informed. And so he's always saying, Oh, what about this? Or change that or consider this. So it's a kind of a team, uh, effort in that regard. Um, but for me, and, and, and now that we've expanded, so like, uh, next in a few weeks, we've got this book coming out. This is uh, volume two of our history book. It's a 250 page hardback, uh, book all about American history. And this covers from 1776 through 1791. And so it uses storytelling to teach about the principles of the revolution and the constitution. And, um, and so this, this book has taken us quite a while to work on. So we have these different like formats now, like that, that big book is, is a, a really significant thing. Uh, another format that we do is uh, we have this series for teens called guidebooks. So we have like the Tuttle Twins Guide to Logical Fallacies. And every chapter is a different logical fallacy with cartoons and stuff to kind of depict how they work and basically teaching critical thinking. Or we have uh, the Tuttle Twins Guide to Modern Villains, where, uh, oh, I have that here, where every chapter is a different uh, bad dude from history. And so we can learn about like how they rose to power and therefore, you know, like, so here's Mao. And so there's a chapter all about Mao. And it features the story of Mao's background and how, how he rose to power. And we just kind of explain for teens how that works so that we can say, like, how can we make sure modern villains don't don't grow today, don't rise you know, to power today? What can we learn from their mistakes and their circumstances to avoid it? So the next one I'm working on right now, uh, I was working on it this morning. We're doing a guidebook called the, the Tuttle Twins Guide to True Conspiracies. And mm. every chapter is going to be like, you know, MK Ultra. Operation Northwoods. I'm throwing in Hunter Biden's laptop, you know, wow. like all, all these things where, you know, it's like, here are legit, actual, verifiable conspiracies. And why? Like, why do we want kids learning this stuff? Teenagers, this one's for, for teenagers. Um, ultimately, it's because, like, are we so deluded to think that, oh, yeah, sure, these things happened decades ago, but nothing like that is happening today. Our government would never lie. Like, no, of course not. And so if we can learn from the past that there were all these actual conspiracies and horrible uh, things being planned, we can kind of maybe be a bit more skeptical of what we're being told today and realize that there may be similar psyops and, and conspiracies afoot today. So I'm excited for that book. I think that's going to I think that's going to blow up uh, when we publish it later this year. I think it's amazing. And we've got to reclaim the language, too. It's like conspiracy is like this dirty word. How dare you even think about them and believe them? Like, this doesn't happen. And yet we see it all around us. It's been going on since the beginning of time. And so for children to be aware of this term and, and not to uh, feel like, oh, wow, if someone calls me, calls me a conspiracy theorist, then I'm just going to shut down and not keep living my life as an empowered individual instead of still fighting for truth, still fighting for, you know, bringing more... Um, you know, bringing more eyes and ears into some of these issues that people aren't going to get from the mainstream media. Like you have to be able to read. You have to be able to like go beyond the first five things on a Google search if you want yeah. to find out the truth. Like it's just not going to happen if you're just looking at your social media feed or listening to Anderson Cooper. <laughs> well, it's true. And, and ultimately it stems from desire. Do people desire truth or not? 
And I feel like it's like the Jefferson quote, the column of despotism. There's plenty of people who are fine to just live in the matrix mm-hmm. or, you know, who want to be reinserted into the matrix like Cypher was, right? Ignorance is bliss. There are many people who, who operate that way. I, I think it's far fewer in our society, people who are willing to seek after the tough answers, you know, of life to be red pilled, to deal with the struggle that that, I mean, I got to tell you as someone who considers himself pretty red pill and awake, like it's tiring. I, I hate, you know, having to assume that everyone's lying to me and I hate questioning everything and I hate second guessing everything. It is far more convenient to just go along with the narrative mm-hmm. and just be led by the, you know, uh, whatever led, you know, by, by, uh, uh, your shepherd, your false uh, prophets, and so forth, and it's. It, I think it's a lot more convenient. It is tiring to to be awake, um, but uh, I, I think we have to. And I think it's it's ultimately like because I desire truth, and that is the price of truth is the uncomfort uncomfortability of reality, and and realizing the way things actually are, rather than the false narratives and the scales that have been put over our eyes. The the false matrix that's constructed for so many people. Um, and, and maybe a final thing there, just because I mentioned the matrix, I, I consider the mate, not the original, not, not the, not, yeah, not the not sequels, the, uh, the original, I consider it second to scripture and how accurate a depiction it is of like human society and human behavior. More specifically, the scene where uh, matrix, uh, excuse me, Morpheus is, uh, walking Neo through kind of the simulation talking about what the matrix is, the woman in the red dress, you know, and he says, look around at all these people, they represent the minds of the people, you know, we're trying to liberate. And yet these people, he said, will fight you. They are so hopelessly dependent, so inured in the system that they will fight you as you try to liberate them from it. And I've always found that so fascinating because here I am running a think tank, fighting for freedom, trying to liberate people, trying to help them. And these people fight me when I know that the solutions we're pushing for and the things we're trying to do is ultimately better for them. And yet they are so trapped within this system that they can't see anything other than the false reality that's been constructed for them. It's depressing sometimes, man, to see how like plugged in people are and how they'll fight you when you know that you have the truth, when you know that what you're standing for is right. Uh, but I, I, I am weird in the sense that I have like some DNA that just compels me to, to be awake and be in the fight and have thick skin to go press forward despite all of that, because uh, ultimately for me, it's, it's about the dopamine hits. When I get like emails from parents reading Tuttle Twins or people whose, you know, business has been helped because of this law, we got changed or whatever. And they're like, Hey, thank you. This is, it all goes back to me to that 2007, you know, polygamy fundamentalist thing and being praised and, and shown gratitude for serving other people when they can't help themselves. Um, and, and so that, that's kind of how I'm wired is like, I'm always chasing that dopamine head of like, how can I create value for other people? How can I positively impact other people? And then it's a win-win where I get my little, you know, drug fix from dopamine and they get uh, education or some legal reform. And so that's a, a win-win, I guess. Incredible, man. Yeah. You're a legend, bro. I just love how real, how authentic you are and like, you know, how you, you you're so legitimate as well. You know, like no one's going to come around calling you like, tinfoil hat conspiracy theorist you know in in the in the, in the derogatory sense that many others are um so just love what you stand for man what kind of question Thank for you. you like if you think like without the elite class without you know the quote-unquote propagandists of the world in the nefarious sense do you think the mass of men would still prefer despotism 
without the conditioning, without the programming? Well, I, 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 this is a good question, and I don't want to demean it by giving some off-the-cuff answer, some processing. Um, because isn't it, isn't it that inherent despotism within the masses that actually gives rise to the elite? Like the master requires a willing slave, right? I mean, ultimately, it's the chicken or the egg scenario, right? Which one produces the other one? Or is it this symbiotic relationship where they're both kind of naturally going to emerge in any human society? Yeah. Um, like have we always I, been I a minority like, throughout history? Like even, you know? Well, you, you guys are familiar with this concept of social proof, I imagine, this, this, uh, where we're heavily influenced by other people. One of the stories I love to share that illustrates this was from a Nickelodeon show or no National Geographic show called Brain Games years ago. Mm. And they set up this fake like optometrist clinic. Oh, yeah. Uh, on the side of the road. You've seen this or heard about it. And uh, they were offering free eye exams. This lady walks in, grabs the clipboard, starts filling it out, you know, and there's this buzzer sound that goes off. And the, the gal next to her sitting next to her stands up and sits back down. She's like, that's kind of weird, you know, and keeps filling out her form. Uh, someone else comes in, gets their clipboard, sits down, buzzer goes off. The new person that just came in, as well as that other person, stand up, sit down. She's like, this is so odd. And so, you know, it happens a couple more times and people start getting called in to the point where she's the only one in the room. And the buzzer goes off and she still stands up and sits down without having any knowledge as to why no reason like just the power of needing to act in and conform in ways with other people so joel i like your question and i guess where i kind of tentatively land on it is i think we're so influenced by other people that even if there's not this top down uh you know propaganda push onto us i feel like uh the fact that like social proof is a real thing the fact that we are uh, likely to take our cues from other people. I feel like in a large society, these these things are naturally going to emerge. And they're, we're going to defer to people and like, oh, you're the expert. I'll just listen to you. And now I don't have to do the thinking and the, the research. I'll just, you know, listen to what you say. I mean, I get like when it's election time, um, I, I get all kinds of texts from people in my neighborhood who know that I'm all political and informed and so forth. And they'll just ask me straight up, who should I vote for? And, mm. and, you know, I tell them because my vote turns into like, you know, 28 votes because I get to control what other people do. So I, I'm going to capitalize on that. But that's depressing as hell to me that these people are not even willing to invest the time and energy to like look into this stuff. So I, I feel like, again, big society, people are naturally going to take path of least resistance. They're going to be lazy. Experts are naturally going to emerge. They're going to defer to them. Social proof kicks in. And all of a sudden we've, we've started you know, where we were before. So yeah, sure. Snap your fingers and get away with the propaganda. But I think it would just, you know, naturally reemerge. It's some weird function of, of, you know, human society. I don't know. Mm, yeah. Most, man. Most people are subconsciously programmed to seek safety within the herd. And so, you know, they're looking out what's the safe card to play. Uh, and the zeitgeist to some degree uh, of the times determines that. And, you know, you saw what happened in 2020, um, and people do conform. People want to get a, go along to get along. And you bring up the brain games um, experiment. And, you know, many uh, decades ago, um, Solomon Ash did his conformity experiment as well, which is, I think, maybe one of the precursors to these more modern ones. 
And, uh, you know, people, even though deep down they think they have the right answer to a question because everyone next to them is answering and picking the wrong answer, they'll go along and pick the wrong answer just so they don't feel ostracized by the group, you know. But when they did these experiments, if one other person gave the correct answer, they felt more confident to give the right answer, even if there were a few others that were, um, you know, giving the wrong answer on purpose. So, again, it's... um, you know, it's even more reason to speak your truth and live your life and, and, and live your life. Um, you know what I mean? Like it's 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 well, and, and going back to the Cialdini book influence and how we can use these tools in a positive way. I, th- I think about how we how can we how can we leverage social proof and that type of behavior patterning, you know, after other people in a positive way to get more mm. people to do, you know, what's right and what's good rather than always assuming this kind of negative thing. There was this clip I saw a couple of years ago. I think it was recorded like 10 or 15 years ago. And it's this kid at some outdoor concert and there's some kind of rock jazz band, something playing. And this kid is just out on the, all these people are sitting out on the grass, you know, enjoying the music. And he's just up there like dancing. Right. I mean like full on dancing and in, in, in with his vibe and his mojo and whatever. And like awkwardly so, right? Because everyone's kind of like, ha ha ha, like, look at this kid. He's just, you know, and he's doing it for a while. And I don't know, 30, 40 seconds into it, someone just gets up and joins them. And now they got two people and they're goofing off and then a third and then five more and then 15 more and then 50 and 100 and 1,000. Pretty soon the entire place is up dancing. And and it's just this spectacular video. I should try and find it and, and share it again like it's it's so amazing to see that this awkward kid had kind of the the leadership and the ability to like stand up and stand out and and stand for something even as silly as just you know letting loose and having a good time but the influence he had was it it was it was viral in the true sense of the term so i i try and think about like how can we leverage those human dynamics those social dynamics in a positive way uh, because they're being leveraged in a negative way. We ought to compete. We ought to do something similar. What does that look like? And that, that to me, is a fascinating question. Mm. Yeah. And I, I think, like, again, coming back to individualism, to realize each one of us is a miracle. You know, the fact that we were born, you know, what does it take to be born? Just that alone. And that we are a fractal of the whole. We are a gift from God, whatever you want to say, whatever your belief is. And to know that you're this gift, and that you have this purpose and you have these special things about you that you can cultivate and give your gift in the world. And I think the more each individual knows themselves, loves themselves, uh, accepts themselves and figures out what that thing is that they're meant to do. You know, you had that one major rite of passage that led you on your journey and every individual has those things. They, they have a calling, whether or not they answer the call or not. That's a whole nother question. But those that do, it's like you have a responsibility to give your gift. And when you do it, from this place of joy and bliss unapologetically other people you're you're living by example and other people you talk about impacting the social the uh, like social contagion in a positive way that when you yeah. live as an individual truly and 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 from a place of joy and and authenticity people that's infectious I find, you know, at least depend. some people might be triggered by that but again like that's not my on some level that's not my problem I'm going to live my life and my tribe, the people that I relate to me are going to come to me and connect with me. And I think the more people do that, we're going to see change. I think a lot of that stems down to being comfortable in your own skin, just as this awkward kid was dancing. Like we have to be so comfortable with our own views and beliefs and 
desires that we can be open about them and risk being canceled, risk being attacked, risk being called a conspiracy theorist, risk being, you know, fired or criticized or whatever. Like, again, Jefferson, the, the sea of liberty is tempestuous. It's not going to be easy. It was never intended to be such. Ships were made for the sea, not for the harbor, right? Um, and so you can stay safe at the harbor all day long, but that's not why we make ships. Uh, and so to me, it's really a call for like having enough self-confidence. And uh, what, what was the ter- Joel, term, Joel, that you used? It wasn't self, self-confidence. Self-esteem. 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 Yeah. 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 And and developing that to the point where we can have the confidence to go out there and just be ourselves and shine that light. And, and it's going to radiate and impact other people positively, just as it did on this field at some random concert. I guarantee you over half of those people, if not way more, you know, still have that as like a super positive, fun memory to look back on and just let loose and, and have a good time. You know, what what good can we do if we just stand like I was a friggin web developer that started an online petition. I had no, I had no idea. I still don't know what I'm doing. I run a think tank. We employ like 60, 70 people. I have no idea what we're doing. We make it up as we go. You know, there's no manual for this. I'm a web developer running a big organization. I've written 40 books, sold millions of copies. I literally have no idea how to do this. And every day is just constantly rediscovering how to try and how to pivot and how to experiment and tweak. And so to me, it's it's a, it's a it's a, like if there's one good thing that happened during COVID other than Tuttle Twin Sales exploding, which was also a good thing, it, it's that the term expert is now out the window. Right. Because we were told experts say this, experts say that experts recommend this like over and over crammed down our throats. And I feel like that word has really lost its power for a lot of people. Um, You don't need to be an expert to to do what you need to do to go radiate and shine your light and stand up and and impact other people. Again, I, I built websites for a living and now I've changed hundreds of laws and written tons of books. Like I, I have no formal background in this. I have no training for this. I didn't go to school for any of this. I, uh, so, so like, especially when I talk to teens, you know, I'm like, guys, like getting a piece of paper that says that you can do work does not mean that you can do the work. And it doesn't mean that anyone will hire you to do the work. <laughs> it just means that congratulations, you sat in a chair for another four years and did what you were told, you know? Yeah. It, it's, it's, it's a different world. You know, we need to to be prepared for a future economy and a future society rather than one from 150 years ago. Uh, it's uh, I don't know that uh, I could go up on all kinds of tangents here. So I'll stop. <laughs> I love the tangents, man. I love it. I'm loving this conversation. I love your passion. I love who you are, man, because, again, I, I, I knew a little bit about you. I knew your books more. And just to be able to have this conversation and connection with you, you're just a, a cool dude. You're deep. You're truthful. You're authentic. And I, I just have so much respect for you. Yeah, totally. thank you. No, it's 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 great to be able to come on to safe spaces like this to be able to <laughs> talk openly about what I actually think. <laughs> but you know, like we talk about and like we project and idolize onto like superheroes. But you know, you think about like a Superman or a or you know or a Clark Kent or a Spider Man in a Peter Parker. Like it's very reminiscent of your own arc. You know, I was just a web developer. And it's like all of a sudden, <laughs> yeah, you you answered the phone, you picked up the call. You know, you put on the cape. And it's incredible how things shift, like, again, like echoing how we started this conversation. Maybe let me add here a plug for uh, uh, something that I've I've really enjoyed, Uh, because I I can knock public schools all day long. And I'm very pro homeschool. 
but you know, not a lot of families are, are willing to make that type of sacrifice and so forth. There's a, a school um, model, I guess you might call it, called Acton Academy. Have either of you guys heard of this before? I don't think so, no. Okay, so Acton Academy, it's, it's named after Lord Acton. He's the one that has the quote, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Um, so Acton Academy was started by an entrepreneur out of Austin, Texas, uh, named Jeff Sandifer and his wife, Laura. And they, they created this school um, that is modeled after uh, what's called the hero's journey, Joel, which is what I think you were uh, kind of alluding to, whether consciously or not. And, and so the hero's journey, Joseph Campbell, he wrote this uh, book called The Hero with a Thousand Faces or something like that. And he shows that through all these epic tales, all these big uh, stories and, and legends, they follow this formulaic pattern. And like, let's use the matrix as an example, since we were talking about that. Neo, right, is called to this adventure. He's called to this uh, this this effort, but he feels very self-conscious and he has this self-doubt. Well, he has a mentor who shows up to show him the way. And so then he's surrounded by a team and off he goes to face the first challenge where he fails. And so he has to regroup and rebuild and, and then go try again and then overcome. And in the process, he's transforming himself so that he comes out the other end as this totally new creature. And then when he returns full circle, you know, back home, he's a different person, you know, on a different journey. You can take Frodo in, in Lord of the Rings, right? Same thing. Peter Parker, Spider-Man, same. Like, and, and so the hero's journey is this very kind of almost formulaic process where these epic tales are all about human transformation. So this school, Acton Academy, they model their school after uh, the hero's journey. So they call their students heroes. My kids, uh, uh, as of a year ago, we put them in a local acting academy uh, because I was like, I found no other school that I would want to ever put my kids in other than, uh, than this one. It's basically like, how do you how do you train entrepreneurs? Like, how do you get people to be like whole, uh, holistic and, and uh, well-rounded and all the rest? So the, the students are heroes. The teachers are, there are no teachers. The adults are guides, just like, you know, Morpheus or Gandalf or whatever. So they're there to guide you. You sit down at the beginning of the school year and you uh, identify your journey. So the, I think the journeys are like 12, like semesters or trimesters or something. They call that a journey. And you sit down together with your parents and the guide and you identify what's the journey that you're going to go on. What's your call to adventure? What are your obstacles going to be? Who's the team that you can build around you to help you to overcome the obstacle and you know achieve success? How are you going to be transformed in the process? And it's this very kind of invigorating, self-affirming process uh, to realize like we're not coddling these kids, we're not sitting down, sitting them down, telling them to shut up and memorize and regurgitate stuff. It's like you are on your like I think my kids are on their own journey of life, and and they they shouldn't be a mini me. Or they shouldn't be an imprint of whatever some curriculum committee says that they should be or, or know or do. They're their own people. I'm a religious person. I think God has kind of predestined them in a way for like having certain talents and skills and opportunities in life that are in front of them. I have no clue what that is. My job as a dad, I feel, is to help them figure out where the path is as soon as possible. For me, it wasn't until after college when I Googled Ron Paul and I started to figure out, oh, I need to be over here. You know, this is my life trajectory, not building crap websites for you know random companies. I want to help my, my kids discover their path in life as soon as possible and then help them build that team. Who's their you know mentor and who's their tribe and who can help them on that journey. Um, it's a very affirming 
process. So these acting academies, they're all over the, uh, the United States. They're in other countries. Like one of the biggest ones is in Guatemala. Um, hmm. And uh, it's just an amazing uh, model for a lot of kids uh, to, to give them that self-empowerment of saying, oh, I get to kind of control my own education process. I get to have a say in what I'm going to learn and do and, and get help from people along the way. It's, it's, a, it's a great model worth looking into for those who are curious. Sounds amazing. Yeah, I'm going to look into it for sure. <laughs> I'm, going, I'm going back to school, bro. Yeah, <laughs> totally. I want to go on a little hero's journey. I identify as a seven-year-old. Uh, <laughs> uh, um, what what faith do you still have in the political system? None. Um, so I see my because I'm. I mean, that sounds silly for someone who's engaged in in politics like I am on a daily basis. I I view my political involvement as akin to being on the deck chair of the Titanic. I, I don't think we can change the direction of the Titanic. I don't think we can change the inevitability of the crash. I think there are, you know, calamitous times ahead and, and big challenges as, as a society. And I don't think we're going to get away from, you know, economic turmoil and all these problems. So I, I, I feel like my role through the political process is really um, waking people up on, on the Titanic and getting them off to the lifeboats. Right. Like like reaching as many people as possible through whatever means I can and helping them see like, guys, there's you know bad things afoot. You need to prepare. You need to get your family's affairs in order. You need to get your finances straight. You need to develop additional streams of revenue. You need, you know, all these things. So to me, like, yeah, we're changing laws. But again, I feel like it's Band-Aids on gangrenous wounds. We've got to treat the underlying disease. And that's all education. It's getting people to wake up, take the red pill and, and act accordingly. So um, I, I, I don't have a lot of faith. It's just, it's like social media. I would quit tomorrow if I could. Yeah. Um, I, I would love to not be on social media, but I feel compelled to because that's where the people are. Yeah. Yeah. And my job is to reach and teach people. And so I, I have to engage in that process. I feel dirty every day doing it, but it's, you know, part of the, the calling as it were. Um, and so I, I think it's that way with, with politics as well. To me, it's a, a means to an end. It's a vehicle through which I can reach and persuade and educate people. Um, and it's, it's been effective in the past. You know, we do some good along the way, but I recognize that, again, for every step forward we take, we're taking a bunch of steps back. And um, I, I, don't, I don't have a lot of hope in the political process. I think it's, uh, it just leads to tribalism. And, like we just did a, a Tuttle Twins cartoon the other day, uh, last week, all about uh, tribalism and you know, George Washington in his farewell address, he's already seeing in his own cabinet this this devolution of kind of the the like spirit of unity and coming together and brotherhood. And because, you know, during the revolution, they were all on the same side. And that was convenient because they were united by a common enemy. But when they had to figure out how to govern themselves, all of a sudden, you know, you got Hamilton over here wanting a bank already, trying to turn us into a monarchy again. And there are all these competing ideas. So Washington in his farewell address warns of the spirit of party. Um, and, and it's kind of toxic effects on, on the political process, uh, young as it was at the time. So I, no, I'm, I'm, I think it brings out the worst in us. I think it encourages tribalism. I think it doesn't encourage collaboration and unity. Uh, it's, it's, it's a race to the bottom people. It's like hungry, hungry hippo, right? Here's these scarce resources. Mm -hmm. And we're just like, gimme, 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 you know? And, and it's just, uh, 
I don't know. It's, it's, yeah, it's no good, but you know, some of us have to be there engaged in that fight. Some of us have to at least be a voice of reason in a room full of chaos and, and such is my calling and my team for now. And, you know, we do some good, but again, from a meta perspective, like there, there are big fish to fry and this is just a fraction of what we need to be doing. Yeah. Have you read Atlas Shrugged? Oh, yes. Okay. That was one of our uh, Tuttle Twins. We turned it into the Tuttle Twins and the Search for Atlas. Oh, Um, yeah. Yeah, you did. I didn't know that. So we have a children's version all about, you know, the importance of being able to keep what you earn, uh, not having other people steal from you, the dangers of socialism and central planning and mooching, what what, uh, Ayn Rand called uh, mooching, uh, taking from other people something that you had not worked for. Uh, So... Yeah, it's been a while since I read uh, the full book, uh, but I, I go back every once in a while and read like some of the little diatribes, the, you know, the money speech and things like that. Yes. Yeah, man, the money <laughs> speech is next level. That, that, that's just <laughs> incredible. Yeah, for sure. I, I often say, I think I read this once in a YouTube comment, but I claimed it as my own. My life's in two phases: <laughs> before and after Atlas Shrugged. <laughs> It's that way for a lot of people. And, uh, you know, I I think of it this way. If you were to stop the average guy on the road, uh, on the street and say, hey, here's this book. We'll we'll use Atlas Shrugged as the example. You you, you should read this book. He's going to look at how thick the book is. He's going to look at, at, you know, this was written decades ago when they would use like multiple syllables in a word rather than like simple language. There's, There's no pictures in it. Um, and, uh, you know, complex ideas and, so, so the, let me throw the question to you before I continue. What, what percentage of people that you stop on the street and gave a free copy of Atlas Shrugged to, what percentage do you think would actually accept it and read it? Less than, less than, less than 1%. <laughs> you guys are very, uh, very bearish on this. And, but I agree with you. I think, I think sub 1%. But if you, if you take that same individual and say, hey, do you think it's important for your kids to learn about, you know, personal responsibility and entrepreneurship and hard work and, creating value for others or whatever. Right. I think like everyone would say yes. And so then I say, okay, here's a storybook where you can read that with your kids and yeah. you can learn together. Suddenly for that dad or that mom, the, 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 the defenses come down. Right. Mm-hmm. Because before it's like, Oh no, I got no time for that. I don't need that. I'm smart already. What are you saying? I'm an idiot. What are you saying that I'm deficient somehow? Like I got no time. I'm worried about all these other things. But when it's about their kids, like I, I watch Shark Tank all the time. I'm, I'm a religious uh, watcher of, of Shark Tank. And, and when, when the uh, entrepreneurs are in there pitching, if, if it's a product that has to do with kids or pets, Mark Cuban will, will very often comment to the fact uh, that those are the two categories where people will spend indiscriminate amounts of money. Like they're, they're irrational when it comes to their children and their pets. They're very willing to invest and spend money uh, on behalf of kids and pets, but not themselves. And, and they're much more you know, reticent to part with their money when it comes to investing in their self. So, so that's why I think that the Tuttle Twins work can be so impactful is because in a sense, it's a little devious. It's about saying, hey, get this book for your kids. Teach your kids these ideas. You want to be a good parent and make sure that your children are well-rounded. But in the process, the parents' barriers are down. They're reading together with their kid, and which is why a lot of them are learning new things for the first time because they're in a situation where they're open to learning. Yep. Yeah. I mean, our, our dog eats better than most humans, so I totally get what you're saying. <laughs> Connor, man, incredibly inspiring. 
Um, thank you for this amazing discussion over the past 90 minutes. Oh, you're doing incredible work. You're creating incredible value. You're impacting you know, so many lives in such a positive way. Um, just in closing, where would you like to direct our audience and give a final statement? Feel free. Thank you. Yeah, no, I've, I've enjoyed the discussion. Thanks for the safe space. And uh, we'll, we'll see if I get any flack for it from uh, openly sharing my views from anyone who listens, which is always the fun part, just seeing well, the reaction. Won't be from our audience. Uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, so anything Tuttle Twins, you're going to want to go to TuttleTwins.com. Uh, we've got books from toddlers to teens and everything in between teaching these ideas. So if you've enjoyed what we've talked about and you've got kids or grandkids in your life or nieces and nephews, you know, birthdays coming up, or you want them to be reading something meaningful during the summer and not just fritter their time away. Uh, we've got a bunch of book bundles uh, that you can get uh, where we've got bonuses and discounts and all kinds of stuff. So TuttleTwins.com is where it's at for that. Uh, I've mentioned some of the other books that I've written and worked on. So just go to Amazon, type in Connor Boyack. You'll find some of my other books uh, there. Or you can go to ConnorBoyack.com and learn a little bit more about me there. Yeah, we'll have all of the links uh, in the show notes. And for everyone listening, I recommend getting the Tuttle Twins books. They're incredible. They're awesome. You'll learn a lot. Your your kids, your nephew, your grandchildren, they'll all learn plenty. So uh, definitely support Connor and his work. Uh, really appreciate you, man. For sure. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening, everyone. Take care. Guys, thanks so much for listening. That episode blew my mind. Didn't know what to expect getting Connor on here, but you know, straight fire. Very unexpected, but he's a man on a mission and I love everything he stands for and everything that he's about. Thanks for, thanks for listening. We appreciate it. Just quickly, if you are interested in joining the next cohort of students for our eight-week transformational program for truth seekers, Rise Above the Herd, spots are filling up. You can learn more and apply at riseabovetheherd.co. Once you do so, you'll be invited to join Erasmus and myself for a no-obligation connection call so you can learn even more about the program. Much love to you guys. You know, you're the foundation of what we do here. Uh, none of this is possible without your listenership. We appreciate it. If you get the chance, please rate, review, subscribe wherever you're consuming this. Till next time. Smoke and mirrors, I'm seeing through the illusion. Waking up in the time, they think you're in a delusion. Somebody set the alarms, cause they be too busy snoozing. I'm in a DeLorean. Fast forward in evolution to a place where we can share that confusion. Yeah, 450 BC, I'm sharing tea with confusion.